I want to give you a little bit of background on myself and a little bit on, on the environment that I think we're in before I answer the question that I was, uh, was asked to answer, which was how can business lead in a rapidly changing society? Because I think having a little bit of understanding of my background, which, which Julie was kind enough to give you a little bit, um, um, will be helpful for context as well as kind of how I see the world through the lens of the places I've worked, the clients we work with and how they see the world. And you know, um, over the, the scope of a, of a period of time where I think you know, there's massive shifts and uh, mega trends that are affecting the world today that are unlike anything else and their effects on society are tremendous right now. So first of all, my background, since I was very young, I'll be honest, I've been incredibly motivated uh, to make money and be in business. I, I, from a young age, I, you know, I was born with it. It was what I wanted to do. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was um, 11 years old, uh, my father set out to, he decided we need to have all the windows painted on our house. And um, I volunteered to do it. And I said, look, you know, I can sand the windows, I can caulk the windows, I can prime the windows, and I can paint the windows, and I'll do each window for $30. And he was like, okay. Meanwhile, all our neighbors were kind of shocked at this notion of this 11-year-old kid climbing ladders, doing all this stuff. But anyway, it was my summer job, and I was very excited about it. And at the end of the summer, when I finished the job, which I think I did a pretty good job at, despite maybe a bucket of paint or two falling in the bushes and things like that, um, I said to him, you owe me $900. And he said, I'm not paying you $900. That's crazy. And I grabbed his hand and I dragged him around the house. And I said, you better count the windows in this house because there's 30 windows in this house. And you owe me $900. And he continued to say that he didn't owe me $900. And that was crazy. And my mother negotiated and I got my $900 from my father. <laughs> and from that point on, I was pretty excited about this idea at 11 years old of having that kind of money in my pocket. And then a year later, I actually um, applied and got a job at a company that probably dates me with everybody because I don't even think they exist anymore. It was a shoe store chain named Fava. And they hired me and I worked there for years and, and while I was growing up and in high school and um, the manager that ran the store was, um, was very um, excited at my willingness to be productive to the point where he quickly started letting me run the store and close the store and things like that. And, and we were coming up on my birthday and he said, oh, you know, how old are you going to be? And I said, 14. And he almost fell out of his chair because he was pretty sure that he'd broken all sorts of child labor laws <laughs> for the last year. But we quickly passed my 14th birthday and I continued to work there. And again, put a lot of money in my pocket and ended up going to college to UVA um, with $20,000 in my pocket that I managed to save, mostly because my parents back then um, somehow had the authority over me to say, hey, you know, you open a savings account, whatever comes in, nothing ever comes out. It never really occurred to me it was my account, and I could probably go and take any money out I wanted. But So I, I was very respectful of that point of view, and it, it allowed me to save that kind of money uh, when I was very young. So um, that motivated me a lot, and then... Um, I went to UVA, I got my degree here, I took a job at Price Waterhouse then, Price Waterhouse, and um, really viewed my career and my success mostly around the fact that I was really willing to work harder than anybody else. I didn't particularly think I was smarter than everybody else, but I was pretty confident that I could work harder than other people. And when I was 25, and I, was a, I, I had one promotion, I was a senior um, within the organization, um, PwC, I was considering leaving to go to law school, and PwC convinced me to stay, and they sent me to Columbia to get my MBA. And within a few months of me being at Columbia, getting, working on my MBA and still working at the firm, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And I went through a year of chemotherapy and radiation treatments, and uh, I tell you that story mostly because it, changed, it, it had sort of a defining effect on my life because it, I, I realized I had to dramatically change the way I thought about work. And, um, and what that meant was I really needed to think about not just working hard, but working effectively. And I also, most importantly, I think that changed my life is it gave me a sense of urgency about what I wanted to do in my life, personally and professionally. 
And, and, and that was the best gift I ever got because I think my family raised me to be fairly risk averse and fairly linear in my thinking. And that uh, caused me to feel like I had to accelerate my time and, um, and make the best of it. And so it made me look at life as opportunities to do things uh, as opposed to risks that would seem too scary. And so um, with that, um, I, 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 after six years being a partner at PwC uh, in our entertainment and media practice, uh, wanted to be part of a leadership team. So from that point in my career on, my, my burning desire was to really be part of the leadership team of an organization where I can make an impact. And so that was really my driver from that point on. And I tell this story a lot that it was also a couple of years after the merger of Pricewaterhouse and Coopers and Library, in which um, it was a famous time during our, uh, our development because we called it Noah's Ark. We kind of had two of everything. And it wasn't really a very good time to become a leader at PwC. I appreciate being a partner. And in fact, being every level within PwC is leadership. But I really wanted to be part of a core t leadership team of an organization really help drive the strategy. And it just wasn't a very good time to do that at, at PwC. But I was approached by Skadden Arps um, to become their CFO and then their chief operating officer. And, and that was a huge opportunity for me to jump in and be on a leadership team. And I did that for eight years. And it was a wonderful experience um, to really be able to help drive strategy and operations of a global uh, preeminent law firm. And then David Stern, the commissioner of the MBA at that time, approached me uh, to see if I would come and be the chief financial officer at the MBA at a really exciting time for the MBA. It was a year before um, the collective bargaining agreement was up. So a big part of my job was going to be not only to help prepare the league itself and the teams for it, but also help negotiate as part of the negotiating team for the collective bargaining. Since collective bargaining then was post-financial crisis, uh, the leagues, uh, although although not suffering nearly as much as the rest of the financial community, um, it had a huge impact on, on all businesses. And so the leagues were struggling with their business model given how much the players were being paid. And so huge opportunity. I felt like I couldn't pass up on that opportunity. And um, I went and did that for a couple of years. And then uh, we got a great deal, which um, we were all very proud of, I think, for all sides. And, um, implemented that collective bargaining agreement. And then um, my longtime colleague, who had then become the CEO of PwC at that time, who had been sort of a mentor, a co-mentor of mine the whole time, called me and said, you know, I really want you to rejoin the firm and be our chief financial officer. You've got a lot of great experience. We need there should be a lot of change in the professional services um, industry. And um, I think we need an outsider, insider, outsider perspective on uh, what, what I could deliver uh, to the firm and give that perspective of what, how we need to change and how other professional services firms operated since I had spent eight years at Skadden as well. And so I couldn't resist that. And three years ago, I rejoined um, PwC as their vice chairman and chief financial officer. Um, so what's the environment that we see ourselves in? I think the environment we see ourselves in is massive. Uh, change, rapidly changing technology, which, which, is, which is embedded in everything and every business and every personal experience we have, right? Um, the demographic shifts that are going on today, global shifts, are making enormous changes in people's, in companies' business models. The aging of Europe and the U.S. is having a huge impact on how we think about talent and the demographics of the people we hire. And that's everybody. Um, obviously, we're PwC's a uh, people business, and I've spent most of my career working on um, leading people businesses. So um, obviously, we're sort of on the cutting edge of, I, I think, that issue and how demographics affect um, our business. Uh, but at the same time, of course, Africa and Southeast Asia are in just the opposite situation, booming um, populations, strong uh, youthful populations and a bunch of people moving into the middle class like never before in a bunch of a bunch of these places. So real change in where uh, future workforce is located. 
there's also obviously this week is a great reminder of climate change and the effects of climate change as a, as a huge impact on both scarcity of resources and um, amongst other reasons, the urbanization of all of our populations, lots and lots of people around the world moving into urban environments, which really changes the dynamics of um, uh, how people work, play, think uh, about, about their roles and what they're doing. And so what has that done? I mean, I think the, the, the biggest um, uh, impact, I think, is that society is now thinking about uh, businesses very differently than they have historically. Society needs more. You know, there's huge uh, crises around things like, if you look forward five to ten years, around food and water and, and, and where, the, where we will have... Uh, have um, resources versus who needs them. Um, society knows a lot more. I mean, social media is, has changed the way organizations operate, uh, the way people communicate, uh, the expectations of people, of businesses, of each other, and, and how we communicate, how, how companies even work with, between and amongst their people, right? Um, and what how, how people interact outside and internal. I mean, there's you know hundreds of stories, right? About um, there was a great story I heard about um, a juice company that um, it, back in the day, if you know they rolled out um, um, you know juice packets, and if one of them was contaminated and you know had some bug in it, you know that would have been handled very privately and quietly. And there'd be some, you know, lifetime supply of juice to that family, and everything would be settled. Where today, that uh, the start of that discussion would be a photo posted, you know, on Twitter or something like that. And so it changes the whole dynamic of power, right, between the consumer and companies. And the last thing is is that society candidly can do a lot more. Shareholder activism is a great example of that where you know, there's a real power in being able to influence, um, disintermediate you know, through things like um, crowdsourcing, um, disintermediate whole businesses through just the power of information. So you know, that environment dramatically affects our, our whole conversation about how business needs to lead, right? So what I would say is that Societies expect that businesses that operate in a, by building trust and differentiating themselves are the ones that are going to lead. And that's a pretty big change from where we had been. Because right now, post-financial crisis, um, companies, the, the trust gap between consumers and businesses is enormous right now. And in fact, um, probably worse than ever. And it's pretty critical to the success of the leadership of a company to build trust. Uh, I think principally consumers believe, in fact, um, Edelman did, has, has a trust barometer, and they uh, measured that, um, that companies only really innovate. 50% of all consumers believe that greed is the basis for why companies continue to innovate, not for any other reason. And because of those megatrends, the, the, the interesting thing is, the megatrends are really forcing companies to have to innovate just to survive. I mean, every company's business model right now is under uh, a real threat of um, being disintermediated. You either choose to disrupt yourself or expect that somebody's going to disrupt you. And that's the reality of some of the most basic and fundamental businesses. Many low-tech businesses recognize that it's happening to them as well. Um, so, but, a comp but companies have to differentiate. To, to differentiate, companies have to innovate. They have to innovate to survive. And how, how are companies going to differentiate themselves? And they differentiate through two different ways, I think, today. And that is investments in people and investments in technology to create that acceleration of innovation that puts them ahead of their competition. But there's a huge conflict between what it means to invest in your people and technology to innovate and building trust. And I think there's a real paradox 
that we have to recognize that in order to innovate with investments in people, what you have to believe is that what you need is a much more diversity of thought of people. Let's go back to the demographics that I mentioned. We're in an environment where we've got a, a skilled labor force in the West that is essentially shrinking relative to the growth that is required. And so, um, so there's a real challenge in, in following our traditional hiring models and being able to get the talent we need. My view is that's a huge opportunity for all of you, right? And, and for all of the people even outside of this room. Because in the old days, we had a model where we went to a certain number of schools, hired a certain number of people, we brought them in, and we were pretty passive about the fact that we had a strong pyramid, right? And we were passive about the fact that people left because you know, in the end, we didn't need everybody that came in the door. Today, that skilled labor force is under such pressure, which also means um, they'll cost more, right? It's a supply-demand um, issue as well, that all of us are looking at our business models and saying, how can we do things to get more productivity and, and, and do things differently? And for us, that means a big part of that is reducing the turnover that used to be something that we accepted as the norm. Um, and one of the ways we do that is by saying, well, we've got to create a, a better place to work. But at the same time, we know that what we need to do is bring people in from much broader um, and more diverse backgrounds. Because I think today it's clear, there's been study time and time again that have said that diversity of thought is critical to better decision making. You know, I don't think that's a debate anymore. But it's one thing to find ways, and by the way, technology is helping us more efficiently find ways of casting a much bigger net and trying to find those same people or, or the people that we want to bring into the organization that are really not the same. There's actually the, the purpose of casting that wider net is because we know we need more diverse backgrounds of skill sets, you know, more STEM skills than we ever uh, had before. Uh, we need uh, much more global acumen, so we need people from much more diverse experience backgrounds. Um, and we recognize that when we bring that diversity into a room, that in and of itself is not going to accomplish that accelerated innovation that we need. We then have to create an inclusive environment for people to thrive in and encourage openness of thought and sharing of thought. It doesn't really do much good if you bring people in and you sort of then expect them to conform to some specific way. And so, so the, the, the desire of all companies, and again, uh, I think professional services are in the forefront of a lot of this because we have the most acute concerns about um, the scarcity of skilled, uh, highly talented people. Um, it's, really, um, it's really important that, um, that we provide an environment that gives flexibility, openness to our people, um, give people, invest in technology, not just for systems for ourselves to run better, but to give to our people to have them be, have a mobile experience so that they can work in virtual environments. Uh, I was talking to one of, um, one of the PwC people who, who is in the room today, actually, who, um, whose husband is a student here, and she works for PwC, and that would never have been possible even 10 years ago, for somebody to work in that virtual capacity in such a productive way. And I can tell you, she may be doing that. I live in Savannah, Georgia, and my job is in New York. And I spend you know, my, my weekends in Savannah, and I work virtually sometimes from there. I'm on the road, and I work virtually. I work virtually from the inn at Darden all day yesterday. And I can tell you, I'm as productive on the road as I am when I'm in an office. I'm not saying I could do my job 100% virtually because this is important, right? This wouldn't be the same if we weren't face-to-face. -face. Um, but I'll tell you, it has allowed our people to live their life very differently. And that means we have a lot more people who want to work for us, and we have a lot more people who can stay and work for us much longer than they would have ever anticipated. And that allows us to have a lot of people a, with from a lot more differing backgrounds contributing to what we know we need, which is that acceleration of innovation to, to not only ensure 
that we're maintaining the status quo because, candidly, a lot of it is that. But hopefully accelerating and becoming that differentiated organization. And so I, I think what's important to recognize is cultural inclusion is critical if we want to be innovating for this rapidly changing society. I think it's going to be one of the table stakes. But what I can tell you is that that conflict between trust and diversity means it's much harder to do this. And so we thought a lot about that and said, well, this is, this is great. We, we think we have kind of understand that we want to stand for building trust, and that's critically important to society. But we also want to, but we also want to create a diverse environment. And let's face it, people trust who they know and what they know. So innovation scares them because it's changing what they know. And diversity scares them because it changes who they know. And what we have, we, and we're not the only ones that have done this, but in my mind, the clarity of what we are trying to accomplish led us to say, we need to make sure we are really grounded on our purpose. And our purpose is to build trust in society and solve important problems. And what that allows us to do is ensure that every person who joins our organization is clear on our purpose and the values and behaviors that, that follow that and allows them to stay different and diverse and comfortable that they can be included and aligned around our purpose but still being able to contribute who they are as an individual. Because if, the, if there's no way for them to contribute as an individual, then we really haven't solved anything by just bringing in a broader, more diverse population. It's got to be a group of people who, who are, feel comfortable and safe sharing those views and, and, and throwing out those crazy ideas that are, are the beginning of innovation, right? You got to throw out those ideas, then you got to invest in them, and then you got to execute on it. But you got to start with those ideas that sometimes aren't so easy to throw out there. Sometimes, you know, um, especially if you feel like you look and act differently from everybody else, you're concerned that, you know, that it's safer to not put an idea out there. So, so how do you do that? You know, how do you align around purpose and is it as easy as it sounds? And I'll tell you, the next step is you got to recognize the habits that you have that force you to not really become inclusive in the way you act. And, and, and um, uh, I think the recognition that what we really do when we develop relationships um, uh, came true to me when I read about uh, a study my alma mater, alma mater did, uh, Columbia Business School, with their executive MBAs. This is a new study. It was back in 2002. They, um, they brought together the executive MBAs and said, look, we want to do a business network, networking mixer. Uh, but we want to do a little study, so we're going to you know, have a tracking device on each of you. And if you could fill out a survey of what you're trying to get out of this mixer that we're doing, it would be great. And so they put their backgrounds, and they, um, they all said their stated goal was that they wanted um, to meet more people to expand their network. I mean, why else would you go to a business networking session, right? So they have this, uh, this um, event. They all went, and they all you know, thought that they were mixing. And the facts afterwards said that the people that were investment bankers that went into the executive MBA program talked to other investment bankers, and the consultants talked to other consultants, and so on and so on. Except one person in the room, the bartender. He's the only person that talked to everybody. <laughs> and it was such a great story because you know, everybody was well-intentioned. It just they did what they were comfortable doing. And there's a, there was a professor at Kellogg named Brian Uzi who wrote a great, did a great study on networking. And he said, that this, is, like, this is classic. And what happens is everybody has what he calls their echo chambers. And echo chambers are, you know, that, that little self-fulfilling group of people that validates everything you think. And you kind of think you're sharing and collaborating, but all you're doing is sort of self-fulfilling your own ideas and getting more confident and maybe more narrow-minded about your point of view on something. And, you know, so he, he really has worked on, you know, how do you break those echo chambers? And those are the habits 
that I that I'm saying is that you got to first of all I think you have to have an awareness that that this is an issue and everybody does it and I think you know we all have to recognize we do it and that it's uncomfortable to not do that and creating an inclusive environment though mandates that those echo chambers get chopped up and it really comes to each and every one of you to do that yourself and so I would ask each of you to think about that and um, and, and one of the ways to do it is to consciously recognize that you have other um, you don't have to you don't have to create a false situation when you're passionate about something you know networking with other people that have those same passions and making sure that you're doing it in a way that you're really developing deep relationships with other people and finding those common grounds you know a lot of people ask me um, what was it like to work at the MBA you know uh, and, and it was obviously a very interesting place to work. And as a woman, people say to me, what was it like to work as the MBA? And I'll be honest, there, there, were, there weren't no women at the MBA. So, but it, it was a, you know, a, a pretty you know, uh, highly, obviously, oriented um, male, male organization. But there were several senior women. But nonetheless, a lot of conversation that was much more sort of you know, uh, sports-driven and and um, people would say, how did you do that? I said, well, you know, I never really have approached, honestly, I've grown up in an area where I'm used to being um, one of the only women in the room, if not one of a few. And to me, it's always been about finding common ground. And that you find common ground with people, you don't have to define yourself as different on a gender basis. You can define yourself as the same on another basis. And so some of it's attitude, right? And just being conscious about finding common ground with people that seem very different than you and actually trying to find that common ground, and then, and then developing that, you know, making sure you're spending enough time that you develop some deep relationships with people. I know this all sounds like incredibly sort of tedious and painful, but I don't think there's any other way to develop a truly inclusive environment except for having people be aware of this issue and consciously you know, doing something about it individually, and having an organization, by the way, that supports that tremendously, right? That says, this is what we want you to do, and a, a safe environment to call it out when people aren't doing it. So I'd say that, that to me, is one of, the, one of the biggest things we all need to do, because in the end, my view is there's a huge business case for inclusion. It is critical to innovation. I mean, they, they, they are connected directly to our being able to do that, and innovation is not only critical from a, a differentiation point of view, but it's critical for a survival point of view for most companies. So I, I do think there's a couple other reasons why this is worth talking about. I mean, one of the things we found, PwC is 80% millennials now, and we've done an enormous study on our population in the US, which is 50,000 people, 40,000 of which are millennials. And the good news is, is that uh, this is highly consistent. <laughs> I think all of what I said, you know, I've seen a lot of heads nodding. You might not hear heads nodding uh, throughout the, our most corporate leadership teams. But I think one of the beauties is y you guys, quite frankly, all get it much more than most of the leadership of companies today. And that um, the alignment around purpose is what you guys are telling us you want. Um, you're telling us you want to be able to work in flexible ways and have access to great mobile technologies that allow you to work in a much different way. You want to be able to be yourself, uh, which, you know, quite great, honestly, as when I grew up in the, in the firm, that, that didn't seem to be, like, there was a lot of desire uh, amongst many of us. And, and this could be unfair. I, I, don't, I think it was the same for a lot of women when I grew up in the firm 30 years ago. Um, and in most companies that you felt like you had to conform to what somebody else looked like and acted like. Um, the celebration of people as individuals and allowing people to be individuals, I think is, is critical to all of our success and success with the millennial generation and, and, the, and the tools that they want. So um, that's all great news, I think, because um, all of that aligns with, I think, success for all companies today. Um, I think technology investments aren't to be understated. I think they're, they're needed, by the way, to, give, to enable what I just talked about, you know, mobility, 
um, and allowing your people to thrive um, and having great tools that allow virtual collaboration, things like that are critical to the success. But they're also critical, obviously, for innovation um, and, and to prevent all organizations from becoming uh, disrupted. I mean, the reality is professional services today, historically, has been you know, enormously a people business. And I think what you're going to see going forward is, and, and it's already happening. This isn't like a, we're crossing the line. But as this, these demographic pressures continue to build, it's going to be much more clear that these organizations are going to become much more balanced as people and technology companies, both as enablers for, for our people, um, but also as a means to um, deliver to our clients in different ways than we have in the past. And so, um, and by the way, I think that's all great because I think that's, that's um, it's going to allow every person who decides to go into professional services to um, operate at a much higher level because lots of the job that has historically been done um, it has spanned from you know high intellect to uh, more administrative type stuff. There's a real acknowledgement that we can't afford to take our best people and allow them to be playing any kind of role that isn't the highest value added. And so a lot more effort is going into that whole business process reorganization, figuring out what can be done by machines, what can be done by um, less skilled people, perhaps in different places. And um, it requires much more virtual collaboration globally and cooperation on global teams. Um, and all that is, quite frankly, a lot more fun. So I mean, I'll tell you, I think um, those investments and, and those investments are being made in um, different ways of delivering um, different kinds of solutions to our clients as well that are a mix of people and technology. And um, professional services is collaborating with tech companies like they never have before. I mean, uh, many of you probably know we have a, a, a joint business relationship with Google that not only spans in our internal um, operational environment, but also our go-to-market with our clients and developing um, solutions for our clients together, which is you know, really e exciting and a great way to accelerate that disruption that we believe we have to do of ourselves and of, of the profession as a whole. So um, I just want to settle with a couple thoughts. Um, I think aligning on a purpose and making sure when you join an organization that you support and align with the purpose of any organization you join and make sure they have one, I think is critically important because it will allow you to thrive if, if how you feel is consistent. It builds trust and enables a really highly diverse workforce to innovate and really succeed. Um, and I think that's critical given how rapidly changing um, society and the expectation society has on everybody is. You know what, and more personally, I think to be a leader in the world going forward, uh, a lot of us probably think in terms of our quantitative skills, I think it's going to be critically important that we focus on our creative skills as well and we share your skill, you know, your views in that area. We have to be trusted and trusting we need to be inclusive. I mean, without question, in my mind, um, um, companies that don't choose to follow that path um, are, are going to find themselves having quite difficulty in attracting and retaining the best talent. But be yourselves. Make sure um, that you, do, you don't do what you're expected to do. Show and share your passions, because I actually think that um, many of us, I mean, if I could give the best advice about when I came up, uh, you know, keeping my head down and getting my work done was much more of my focus um, than putting it on developing relationships. Showing and sharing your passions with other people and developing those deep and diverse relationships are going to be the way you're going to make the biggest impact um, in society and at any career you have. And you'll be able to accomplish some really great things. So. Um, that's what I think you need to do, personally and professionally. And I think um, I, I, I would say um, the companies that follow that path are going to see um, that society thinks will have met or exceeded their expectations. So that's our hope. So with that, I'll take questions. You, you mentioned uh, diversity of thought and inclusiveness. How do you know, uh, how do you know when that strategy is working for a company? 
uh, or is it an end in and of itself? Um, look, I don't. I, it's not an end in and of itself. I mean, I, I think again, I think diversity of thought has always been a nice to have in theory, right? From my point of view, and as the CFO, you know, I like to say it's it's easier for me to get my head around things when it makes good business sense, right? And um, we are embarking on you know tremendous um, investments in innovation. And what we've seen through the last several years as we've made a number of acquisitions and integrated people of, of, with very different points of view, um, without question, we have seen ourselves be much more willing to take risks, much more willing to challenge some of our historical points of view. You know, great example about you know, in developing IP and um, uh, and, and integrating or making joint business relationships with technology companies, which those are the kind of things that, you know, 10 years ago we probably would have said that that's not the business we're in, right? And so as we've made acquisitions, brought in different people who say, why? You know, anytime you state, uh, you know, a point of view about how we do things and somebody says, well, why do we do it that way? Um, there's no question that causes us to rethink whether that, that policy is fit for purpose. And we've seen a tremendous um, acceleration of our ability to become more technology enabled and um, create much better holistic solutions for our clients by having far more diversity of thought um, than uh, we would have if, if we were continuing to do things the way we had historically done it. And that has allowed us to open up our minds to even saying, well, well it's not just about acquisitions and the people we get through acquisitions, it's about, you know, why are, we, um, why are we not attaining some very different skills from very different places? Why are we um, not considering going into completely new businesses um, that are not time and, and, and material space, right? Um, so without question to me, um, we are such a different place. And we've seen, by the way, our um, turnover statistics, even well past the financial crisis, which you know, for a while you could have said, well, that's convenience. You know, is that really an isolated thing? There's no question right now there's an enormous pr uh, pressure um, in the marketplace on talent, yet our um, turnover rates are at some of our historic lows we have ever been at. And that, to me, proves that we have created a place where people want to work, and we annually do um, great place to work surveys and studies, and we're at our highest levels ever. And it's interesting because I rejoined the firm three years ago when we were embarking on this enormous transformation of the firm um, in the areas of you know, technology and, and really causing a lot of disruption in the way we thought. And what's happened as a result of that, um, I, I knew, I thought, wow, our people survey scores are going to go down. People are going to be really uncomfortable with all this change, kind of going back to people trust what they know and are not comfortable in that environment. And what we've been able to do is manage through that and yet have our highest scores ever. And so all of that to me is um, evident that we have, um, despite attracting a much more diverse population, we've done a really good job of making it an inclusive and great place to work. Thank you for your time today. Uh, you mentioned that you work uh, a lot away from the office. How do you, in the virtual environment, ensure your productivity? What benchmarks are you setting? And then what uh, platforms are you using? So um, I'll answer the second first. Um, we um, went Google this year, the entire US firm, and we're going across our whole network now as well, but the US firm led that, um, which meant that we uh, adopted the full um, Google suite Google Drive, which is a big collaboration tool. I assume most of you know that. So that adoption was a game changer from, for us. Not that we weren't using other collaboration technologies, but that this um, collaboration technology is so easy to do from handheld devices as well as you know, wherever we're working, um, that it's been a game changer. It's been a game changer for me and countless you know, examples of me you know, sitting, <laughs> honestly, in an airplane lounge um, on a Google Hangout with a few other people practicing a speech that we were doing together um, uh, for our annual partner meetings where we really hardly saw each other before we were on stage together, yet practiced in that way from each other's you know, homes, because uh, we lived in two different places, and um, airport lounges, and all kinds of places. That would have 
uh, two years ago, I would have had to take three, four, five different plane flights to our practice sessions to do that. And we elected to say, let's use these tools and see how it went. And, you know, by all accounts, it went pretty well, at least from my, my, my point of view. But I can give you just countless examples of where our people are being able to live their life a lot better. Um, and, and by the way, it's not as much about tools. I mean, obviously, I, I think the reason, honestly, we couldn't do this 20 years ago is because the tools didn't exist. But the tools in and of itself aren't the solution. It's the culture that has to change. There has to be a comfort that everybody is um, ex accepting and, and actually encouraging virtual working as, a, as okay so that it doesn't become a stigma, those people that need to use it because they've got you know, work-life balance issues. But it's something everybody's using, and um, it's encouraged. Um, you know, when I came back to the firm, our CEO, Bob Ritz, said to me, I want people to know that you live in Savannah. I want people to understand that you know, we're role modeling what we're talking about. And in fact, our leadership team, half of us live somewhere else and come together, you know, together for meetings periodically, but we also have lots of virtual meetings as well. And it's allowed us all to actually do a much more productive job uh, at our job and allow us, you know, occasionally, you know, to be home for dinner when, when that wouldn't have even been an option before. And, and so, um, but we all have to also balance that, um, you know, we all know that the tools also make us accessible 24-7, right? And so we all need to recognize that we have put our own boundaries in place too. What was your first question? <laughs> just the, the benchmark to make sure that uh, you're just as productive virtually yeah. as you are. Well, let's be honest. I, I, I happen to work in an industry, and, and even this applies to me as well, that we keep charge of our time, right? So it's, we have you know, meticulous records of everything we do every day. So we have a pretty good sense of what we're able to do and in the hours that we do it in. But I'll give you another great, really tangible example. So. Um, uh, and this gets a little bit into the weeds, but um, annually we have a performance process for all of our people, right? And historically it was a very intensive, um, you know, written form and, you know, laborious process of sending it to the person, sitting with them, um, getting it documented. And it was all about really the compliance of the form. Well, we threw that all out a year ago and developed an app that's on our phones, our iPads, and it's, um, it's, it's graphical, and it's measured across five dimensions for our people. We call it the PwC professional that we measure, and it's a, it's a schematic that you just sort of, you know, use these bars and levers to say this is how you're doing relative to your, your level and um, overall performance, and it's about um, documenting where you differentiated relative to overall versus you know where you might need development and it's a it's really a development tool for us to sit down and ha and give real time feedback to our people as well and it's been a game changer it has um, made our people our people felt not only that they got much more time focused on talking about the feedback that they wanted to receive and, and about their aspirations and their career aspirations and less time on documenting stuff for some kind of rating system. And um, it drove down our overtime for our people in the months of April and May when we do it um, by 20%. It actually increased our revenue productivity by 5% in those two months as well. And it, it had been so bad that many of our competitors were aware that during those two months, we used to be very internally focused. And it has dramatically changed our ability to give better development um, uh, for our people in terms of real, more um, real time as well as face-to-face um, -face coaching, less on compliance, and more time to give people back for themselves, you know, they'll reduce overtime, as well as more time in the market with our clients. And that was a tool um, that is a collaboration tool that is, you know, I, I have most of my meetings, so I combine that with the Google Hangouts, and I do most of my coaching for my people um, candidly sitting on my kitchen counter with a with my computer in front of me, and I have you know half hour to hour sessions you know monthly with them, um, and it's the best time we've ever had. It's incredibly quality, quiet time, um, and yet we're all doing it from different locations. And I I don't think there are, is anyone that doesn't see that as a much better way.
than the way we used to do it. So I think there's many examples of dramatic improvement in productivity and just overall satisfaction of our people. Um, yes, uh, one thing I found really, excuse me, um, one thing I found really fascinating was um, after your diagnosis of Hodgkin's, how that really impelled you to kind of shift your mindset from being a conservative, risk-adverse to more bold and risk-taking. So can you give us some examples in your career when, when, when that started happening and how you took risks and how they paid off? And then secondly, second part is, do you have any advice for us on how we can adopt and emulate that mindset? Because that's something I know I struggle with is, I mean, it's easy to get in a conservative, kind of mm -hmm. just keep going. Um, kind of ex so examples yeah, and yeah. advice. Yeah, so um, first of all, I don't, I, you know, it's a shift from thinking about change as risk versus thinking about change as opportunity. And so the way, uh, you know, remember I was 25, sort of, I thought the world was ahead of me. And, you know, up until then, life was good. And, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, I, I never really felt like there was this, you know, insurmountable challenge in front of me. And then I, I kind of got hit by a wall that made me feel that, you know, I, who knows how much longer, you know, I'm, I'm going to be around or productive and thriving. So I better make the most of it. So that's sort of philosophically. And so for me, that, that kind of made me keep saying to myself, you know, will I have any regrets if, right? And so, you know, when I found myself in a, in a role that I said, gee, I really wanted to be in leadership and I don't see any chance of that happening here, rather than sitting back and saying, well, maybe it will happen next year, or maybe it will happen the year before. I didn't, I didn't think I could afford that time. So to me, when the opportunity presented itself to go take on a leadership position in another organization, um, trust me, I was filled by um, messages from my partners who said, are you crazy? I mean, you know, only six years ago, you crossed that hurdle and made partnership here. I mean, how could you want? And I just... You know, I, I couldn't wait. In my mind, I couldn't wait. And here was an opportunity. And it was a little scary. Um, but I'll tell you, once I jumped off that, what I thought was a cliff and found out it really wasn't, and I was sort of able to, wow, this is exactly what I wanted to be doing, it gets easier. <laughs> so, so that first time when, you know, candidly before that, my life was sort of singularly focused on becoming a partner at, at PwC, and saying, wow, there are, there are things that I want to accomplish in life, and I don't know how much time I have to do it. Um, that was my reason for adopting that philosophy. But since then, I've realized that it's built so much confidence in me that I'm like, oh, I, know. I, I don't have to see it as such a big cliff anymore. I see it as, wow, that's a great opportunity. I, I don't want to pass up on that. And again, that, that to me is in every aspect of my life. And um, so I find that I, um, I, I don't ever want to be complacent. I don't ever want to get into a mode where you know, I, I'm just sort of sitting back waiting for things to happen. Um, and and, and you know, again, that, that's what compelled me, even though I, I, mean, I really loved my job at Skadden, to say, how could I pass up on the chance of going to the MBA? And, working for a legend during you know, a historic period in the MBA's time, even though you know, I knew that that was, you know, I'm not sure I could have done that move first from PwC, the MBA, had I not already gone to Skadden, because I had a lot more confidence that even though it was going to be so different from what I was doing, that I could do it, and that I had that skills. And I think you become a little bit of a junkie after a while that, you know, taking on, you know, can I do it, can I do it, as opposed to, oh gosh, you know, I don't want to upset any apple cart. And so um, I think finding, looking at risk as opportunity is probably the key thing. And I think, by the way, um, we, we, we um, spent the last couple years um, doing a study of self-made billionaires and um, published a book on it, uh, PwC did. Um, and um, one of the things that we learned is that most entrepreneurs look at, look, at, look at risks as, oh my God, here's an opportunity. If I don't take it, that's going to be what I regret. And so um, looking at, it, at opportunities as I can't pass them up because that's what I would regret as opposed to that sounds like a scary thing to do. I mean, I think that is the biggest mind shift that I made. 
if that helps. Um, is it on? Okay. Uh, you said that you do things now at PwC that 10 years ago you wouldn't possibly imagine. So taking the flip side, how far out do you guys look at potentially identifying opportunities in the future? Are they you know, two years out, five years out, 10 years out? Yeah. So we formally have a vision 2020 right now, and we are already rapidly sort of in sort of the you know, not so external to all of our people talking about 2025 as well. So, um, you know, as you know, I mean, we've got complicated hiring cycles that are multi-year. We have, um, you know, a good example for me, all of real estate reports to me. We're making, you know, when you start making all of your people virtual and encouraging them, there's huge opportunities in doing things with real estate. And real estate, you tend to have to commit to in very long chunks if you want it to be um, economically priced. So, um, you know, we have to look fairly long term on, on a lot of things. So the most strategic sort of what do we want our business to look like, we're at the 2025, um, but we're pretty granular at the 2020. And obviously, you know, like all planning, um, and even budgeting, you know, they, you have to scenario plan because there can be all kinds of things that happen, right? But, um, but we're pretty, you know, we have to sort of set a course um, that we see, and, and it's very informed by things like technological changes, becoming more, you know, the whole rapidly change, changing um, business environment and just societal issues require companies from our perspective and the advice we give people and I think most people feel is we've got to all become very agile um, because long, big, deep commitments that commit you to something in a, such a, a changing environment is complicated. So, you know, I think most people are worked, work, working on how, how do you look at those fixed versus variable costs, right? And say, how, how do we make sure we can be agile? Um, Technology is a great example. I mean, I think it's the biggest reason. There's probably two big reasons for the push to the cloud, which is one, people need agility and they don't want to overcommit to, to putting in, you know, enormous investments in systems that may change better to, to rent it, right? Um, and two, because of the cybersecurity issues that, you know, better to have companies that have to do it on an enormous scale make those security investments and again, and, and piggyback off their systems um, rather than having to continue to invest um, um, in what seems like almost a bottomless pit, right, of um, hardening your own security environment. So, uh, and that's a great example of, you know, cloud computing is a great example of companies becoming much, much more agile so that they don't, they can take that issue of technology um, uncertainty off the table. Well, we are all out of time uh, for today, but thank you, Carol. Um, so let's give Carol a round of applause.